All right. Are you ready? I am. Let's do it. Thank you for joining us in The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. Now here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on psychological safety. What is it? How do we create it? And how does it help us build change resiliency on our teams and in our organizations? So let's jump right in. Robin, how do you define the term psychological safety when it comes to the workplace? Lisa, thanks for that question. It's such a great way to have that foundation for our conversation. So psychological safety is the idea that individuals can be authentically themselves in the workspace, which allows them to share ideas or share any kind of conflict they have with what's going on in the work environment without repercussion, without being penalized for it. So it allows them to feel comfortable bringing forward ideas that might not be the common ones in the workplace or that are creating some kind of underlying negative issue in the workplace. And it be okay for them to do that, that they won't necessarily have any kind of overt punishment or more importantly, covert punishment. I love that sense. We're going to dig into that in just a second. But for those of you who don't know her, Dr. Robin Buckley is an executive coach, doctoral professor, and author. She's also a columnist for entrepreneur.com and has taken her message to the TED stage. Now, I want to come back to your what you said about bringing your authentic self with no repercussions. In this environment, I mean, we've all heard about cancel culture. How do we bring our authentic selves to work or to relationships when the cancel culture is so pervasive and sort of without the fear that we're going to be shut down? Well, it doesn't start with the individual. It starts with the organization or the relationship that someone's in. It's ensuring that when ideas are disparate, when they might not align, that it's seen as an opportunity to learn from each other. And I think that's one of the most important things when when I think about communication. People will often say, well, I want to have a conversation so that person understands. And essentially what that means is they want to change the other person's mind. And that is not an effective goal for communication. The goal for communication to really create either change or understanding is just that, to share ideas so you can understand the other person's perspective, period. That's the goal. It isn't to try and sway them, to get them on your side, to change everything so it aligns with you. Because if that's your goal, then it's typically going to be done very often in a more hostile way. It can easily become aggressive. And that's where it all falls apart. So the environment has to be in place to allow people to have respectful conversations to share a difference of ideas. So my belief is that if we come in with the idea of just trying to understand the other person, then it won't be, oh, you don't agree with me. You need to be canceled. It'll be, okay, help me understand some more. Or if it is truly a perspective that hurts other people, you know, either from a the mild level of being offending or truly inspires really hateful behaviors, then it is looking at it from the idea of a revision culture. How can we help people learn enough 
about these other ideas that it might give them the opportunity for revision. It's not us who can make them change. It is simply providing information that maybe they will then decide, I want to change, I want to grow, I want to be educated. And how do we strike that balance between educating each other, making ideas available to each other so we can all hear and learn, as opposed to in organizations, sometimes we don't Sometimes the time for dialogue is over and it's time to move on to decision. It's time to move on to direction. How do we strike that balance without then violating some of that trust? I think that from an organizational level, it is and in a leadership level, it is being very transparent about why. Why was this the decision? And why is this the path we're going to move forward? Because what I've seen is that sometimes organizations or leaders will just say, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And there's no explanation, which doesn't help the participants in the conversation or the people who are going to be impacted by the decision really understand why. Again, they might not like it. And that sometimes there are tough decisions to be made by leaders. But when you can say, this is why we made this choice, we heard what you said, and this is why we couldn't incorporate the direction you had offered. And maybe it's also building in the opportunity to say, but here's what we're going to do with some of the things that you suggested. You know, we're going to we're going to put them not aside. We're just going to put them, you know, to a place where we can address it after we do these first, you know, these first steps. And we do want to come back to a conversation about them. So it's acknowledging that the individuals were heard and then explaining why it wasn't necessarily the direction that the organization took but that they are happy to continue to have the conversation after the changes are implemented and then have more time to really address them. When you find yourself in a conversation where conversation is broken down, you're now espousing your point of view to the other person. So the person is now is, is narrating back to you their perspective and you're not coming to some kind of agreement. What are things that we can think about and that we can do to break down that cycle and try to reestablish some of that trust and collaboration. From from psychological research and some of my favorite psychological research, it's the idea of how you break down the us versus them mentality, which is really what is at the crux of cancel culture and the crux of some of these conflicts that come up in personally or professionally. So the idea that the germinal place to start when that happens is to establish a common goal. What is our goal? What do we really want for the organization or for the relationship, whatever it is? It's not what is my goal. It's what is the goal we share that we are trying to get to. Because once we have a common goal, that's where the boundaries of us versus them break down. That's where we can refocus on how are we going to do this together? So absolutely establishing the the shared goal. From there, I usually recommend that there's an analysis of the strengths of each party or whoever's involved that can contribute to the goal. So we're still not talking about ideas. We're not talking about perspectives. We are talking about what can I offer to get us closer to this goal from really basic levels. Like I'm super organized and I can keep all the information straight and I'm really great at research. So, you know, I'm going to go do the research part. It is really looking at not only from our own individual selves, but being able to appreciate, oh, well, you know, if I was in a group with you, well, Alyssa's really good at that. So we're going to let her take the lead on that. It acknowledges you as having these strengths and these superpowers, basically. And it 
develops that trust that I know she'll take care of it. So we are stopping that. I just want to fight or I just want to be heard and I have to be heard. And it's no, this is how we can get to the shared goal. And we each have a piece to do and recognizing that other people can be part of it. And then lastly, if that either doesn't work or it's not quite as fast as you want, I really am an advocate of bringing in an outside person, a neutral party who can really not necessarily, you know, mediation sometimes sounds like a, you know, you've reached an impasse. Sometimes a mediator just allows there to be that, that neutral place that all the parties can reground themselves and say, okay, here we are again. You know, that mediator can say, okay, but you remember, this is the shared goal that everybody has. So it, it becomes that, that safe space for everybody to reconnect. And are there particular organizations or, or people that you've worked with that you've seen do this really well? Yes. Yes. I've seen really well and I've seen the opposite, but you know, to me, and, and maybe it's the geek in me, but when you can give people data and research, it's hard to argue facts. So when I go into organizations or when I talk to leaders and they're like, no, but, but, but I literally start inundating them with, well, here's the research on this. And here's, you know, it started in the 1950s and then it was demonstrated in social psychology over and over again. And I'm happy to give you the original site. Like I just probably bore them to death because it's not me as the expert. It's not me with all my background and experience. It is objective numbers and facts of why we're going to use this approach. The organizations that allow that information in they're the ones that say, yep, we can go back to that. And what's funny is those are the organizations or leaders that will very often then start quoting the research. Like, nope, we fell off track. We're not going back to our shared goals. So let's revisit that. Because remember in that study, you know, that they did in the 1950s, that's how they did it. And I love that because research and facts brings people to an objective place, which allows them to think strategically instead of emotionally. And how can business leaders as they're making these changes, which are not necessarily easy, right? My experience is that some of these behaviors are very deeply entrenched and we aren't even necessarily aware or ready to acknowledge that we exhibit them. What are some of the business results that we can point to, to help leaders get over the hump on how difficult it is to change, but really the imperative to change? Let's just start with the employees and the people within the organization. Their satisfaction when change is made that resonates with the value system of the organization. So that that's actually another piece that I think is important is being very clear at an organization level, what is the values that hold the organization together? And then it's on the employees to decide if those values that the employees have personally align with the organization. Sometimes it's going to be a no. And it's not because one value system might be wrong or right. It's just, it's a misalignment. For the the people in the organization where the values do align and change is being made to enhance or strengthen that value system, their satisfaction and happiness of being connected to that organization goes up significantly, which then means you're going to have better employee retention and you're not going to be putting out hundreds of thousands of dollars finding and training new employees. We know that productivity goes up when organizations are clear on their changes and the changes, again, align with their overall mission and their overall goal that they are, again, transparent with their employees. And then we also know that it allows for evolution. 
And with evolution comes some amazingly innovative things within an organization. When you allow space for it not to be done the way it's always done and have those voices, you know, that, that psychological safety to go back to our topic so that voices can say, you know what, this is something I've been thinking about. When organizations allow for psychological safety, allow for that opportunity to have respectful conversations, it can impact them in ways that I don't even think they believe can truly happen just from doing this. So happiness, satisfaction, productivity, evolution, they can continue to grow and do things that they didn't even plan originally when maybe the organization first was created. Now, a lot of the language that we hear around psychological safety and that we hear and my listeners hear in these conversations for this season, it tends to be, and I tend to hear a lot of language overlaps between psychological safety discussions and mental wellness discussions in the workplace. And so help me understand how you think about the overlap between psychologically safe environments and initiatives toward mental health and mental wellness. If people feel psychologically safe to speak again, and I always go back to respectfully speak their mind, it has to be based on respect. Because if we're just like spouting off, that's, that's actually contrary to psychological safety. So if they feel that they can come forward and they can share ideas or share complaints or concerns, their mental health is going to be better intact, at least from what the organization can do, because their anxiety is going to be less. Not just their anxiety of, I can't say anything at work, but even just coming into the workplace virtually or in person, they know that it's a, it's, it's a place that they're going to be cared for and a place that they're going to be respected as individuals. So anxiety goes down, depression goes down, the feeling of connectedness, which we know is significant when it comes to um, improved mental health is going to go up. A lot of the things you're talking about resonate with me when you talk about connecting with people, meeting with people, meeting them where they are, you know, listening, supporting. And I feel like I know how to do that in person because there are a lot of nonverbal cues that we give in person, but we're not always in person anymore. I mean, you and I are talking over Zoom. I work with a lot of people over Zoom. What are the things that we need to do differently? What needs to become part of our new normal to communicate that support, to offer that support, to make that support be felt when we're working in a remote environment like this? Honestly, I could create a list based on the amazing leadership that I've watched in some organizations, because again, you know, I I don't have all the answers, but I have seen leaders, I think if I was going to capture it under one category, is they created real space to connect with, you know, whoever, their staffs, their employees, whoever, their, their, you know, their faculty. And what I mean by real space is they make the time. So one, one uh, dean of a college that I worked with, or she called them coffee hours. And she, from like four to five every day. So Monday through Friday from four to five, she was on Zoom. And she sent out the link to not just faculty, but students within her department. And she said, I'm here, bring your coffee, bring your tea. If you just wanna sit and chat, we can chat. If you have concerns, we can do that too. And if it's not the right space, then we can make time, You know, we, we can decide that and make time otherwise. But she, so she just sat with her Zoom window open for an hour every day to allow people just to come in. 
just as they would if it was physical, you know, during, you know, uh, before COVID, where they would just walk into her office and talk to her. So that's how she replicated it. Another uh, organizational leader that I saw did something similar, but he actually, so he, he had a staff of, I think about 30 people that reported to him and he designated 15 minutes every week to every single employee individually. I don't even know how he did it. I'm pretty sure he did on the weekends too. And he said, this is not required. You don't have to, you don't have to show up, but I will be there and it is your time. And again, if you need more time than the 15 minutes, then we'll find more time, but this is your time just to come in for us to connect. At the beginning, he didn't make it mandatory, but he did say, I would really appreciate you being there because it was the beginning of COVID and he wanted to really keep that connection. But then he continued doing it after because they didn't go back to the old normal. They were all, all virtual. The organization decided to be completely virtual. So he maintained those. And he said, you know, I probably get about half of them each week that, you know, will pop in for anywhere from five to 15 minutes, but they know I'm there. And they know I'm there for them. And that's sometimes more important than them showing up and taking advantage of that time. So it's finding authentic ways that work for individuals. A different example, another leader I knew, he made sure he found out every birthday, anniversary, kids' birthday. Like he found out all the relevant milestones for the 10 people that reported to him. And he just, I mean, granted, it was probably his executive assistant who sent the stuff but he made sure that they got cards or small gifts or things would just show up at their house. And he continues to do that. And as he works to know them, they become even more and more personal and really reflects what he knows. You know, he knows that this one woman on, woman on his staff loves sunflowers. So he sends her sunflowers for, you know, her, her birthday and, and the anniversary. It's finding ways just to recognize and appreciate the people in a way that they feel, you know, and, and I'm sure some of them are like, oh, you know, Cindy, the executive system probably sends it, but somebody's thinking of them at a level that, that wasn't the old norm, because these are all new ideas for these leaders. And I think it's pretty amazing when they're coming up with ways to just maintain that connection. How do people managers then, because I think the demands on people managers today are not the demands from, on people managers from 10 years ago when there was more of a concept of sort of work is for work and my responsibility as a manager is to take care of the work and to take care of you insofar as you're delivering the work. And our expectations of managers today, when we not only expect managers to have conversations with their people about the work, but also potentially things that are happening out in the world. What I, what I think works is working even better is one of the strategies that that I encourage leaders to use or managers or managers to use is to create mastermind groups where it incorporates a, certainly some training, but also some coaching and also just peer support. And some of the most effective ones I've seen were created from different organizations bringing together individuals. So as an example, there was one group in a big city near me. And what they did was it was a law firm, a medical, a big medical practice, very large medical practice. And I don't remember what the third one was, an insurance company, something like that, something a little bit outside. And they decided to create mastermind groups where like the, the, the directors from each, they, they put together, I think that it was about 
remembering 10 to 12 directors a total and they took like two from the insurance industry two from the medical practice and you know two or three from the law and they would meet with and they had a facilitator they had an executive coach who would sit with them not to manage the group just to be there as kind of a resource and to keep the the flow of the conversation and it allowed these individuals a safe space to talk about issues they were having and struggles they were having and problem solve, not just within their industry, but outside of their industry, which I think that is where some amazing, in, amazingly innovative approaches can come from because you're not locked into, this is the way we've always done this in law, for example. So this idea of creating groups that incorporate all the things. When we talk about training, it is usually like some expert on a stage telling you what to do and they're boring as hell. So these mastermind groups, it becomes a a level of support and a level of learning that changes their ability to manage when they go back into their organizations. And I think it also creates that safety because they're also not just talking about, you know, talking to people within their organization, it's outside. And Uh, A lot of these groups will, I actually, that group would require that they not meet when they were in the office. So they would, they could do Zoom if they were out of the office. They met in person somewhere that was neutral. So that the mat, the, the concept of mastermind groups, I think is really where you had asked earlier, Alyssa, about the new normal. And I think that's where we've gotten to the idea that learning doesn't have to be just from you know, some, some speaker on a stage, that it can be these interactive groups that know that it isn't just about learning. It's also about support and offering what you know, which also breaks down the us versus them mentality. Now, I feel like we've had a ton of great advice, and I know we're coming up to the end of our time together. But before we go, is there one more thing that you would suggest that our listeners can do to move the needle on psychological safety in their own teams and organizations? Um, I used this word once before, and I do believe sometimes it's overused, but it's it's really perfect right now. It's authenticity. As a leader, if you want your organization to be psychologically safe, you have to demonstrate it and demonstrate it in a way that actually reflects who you are. So when leaders try and do things that don't, they're, they're doing it to check a box, it is clear to everybody in that organization. So it's helping leaders as leaders, finding someone to help you find a way to communicate in an authentic way, to demonstrate what psychological safety looks like, to be a little bit vulnerable, which is very hard for leaders, particularly older leaders who have been doing things a certain way and were taught you stay separate from your group. This is the opportunity for them to say, this is who I am. And this is you know, what, what I'm going to be doing in a way that reflects the psychological safety they want to create in their organization for all the benefits that we know. That's perfect. Well, thank you, Robin. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly or learn more about the work that you do, how should they go about doing that? Sure. They can find me uh, certainly on different social media platforms. My website is drrobinbuckley.com. And then on social media, on LinkedIn and Instagram, it's the same, just Dr. Robin Buckley, no periods, just all one word. So I'm happy to always have a conversation so that people can get to know me, to know whether I'm the right fit to work with them or within their organization. Great. And we will be sure to include those links in the show notes. I really appreciate your time and your perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. 
Now, if any of our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their own organizations, they can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thank you again, Robin. Thank you, Alyssa.